The Pace Line is a production of the Cycling Independent, a reader and listener-supported cycling-focused website where every bike is a good bike. And if you ride bikes, you're one of us. From the Cycling Independent, this is The Pace Line, the podcast on two wheels. I'm Patrick Brady, and with me is my co-host, John Lewis. Each week, we take a look at how cycling fits in our lives. Um, are you fitting much cycling in right now? Uh, not much. We've just come out of a patch of very cold, uh, wet. Unpleasantness. I mean, I did go the unpleasantness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did go. I'm having some seasonal affective disorder. Mm. Just had a, a little turn in the tumble uh, mm-hmm. cycle on that. Um, so I went out. Oh, Sunday in the rain and rode for a while. And that helped a mm-hmm. bit. But it was uh, it was not lost on me at all. I wrote about it this week, but it was not lost on me at all that like. I felt so bad in between my ears that going out when it's 38 and raining seemed like part of the solution. Well, I mean, uh, you know, let's just stop here and acknowledge how you and I have privately had conversations about how when we're truly depressed, we are unable to see cycling as the solution, even though we know cognitively that it is. And we have plenty of history proving that. And yet the way we can be down, somehow we can listen to the message that no, my, a bike ride's not going to fix that. Well, the thing is, I was I was laying in bed, which is not a thing that I do normally, but I was laying in bed thinking I got to do something. I got to do something. And I just knew I had to get outside. <laughs> and so uh, I'm actually feeling pretty good today. Uh but it's been a case of just like doing when you didn't want to, because, you know. Right. We go through the motions because we know that that's part of getting ourselves right again. Right. Right. And yeah, so the bike was the bike, you know, the bike came through. Uh, some friends came through. Uh, awesome. But yeah, not a lot of cycling fitting in my life. How about yours? <laughs> well, um, you're familiar with that term atmospheric river, right? Yes. Yeah, we uh, just, one just showed up on my doorstep a couple hours ago. Uh, um, uh, at about eight o'clock this morning, it was blustery, windy, but also about sixty degrees. It was reasonably warm. The temperature has dropped. It's now raining cats, dogs, and small children. Um, but I'm not going to let that hinder me any more than absolutely necessary. Uh, this would be where I back up and I acknowledge that, uh, riding in 38 degree rain, um, is an achievement. I mean, it used to be, you couldn't get me out on a bike in those conditions unless I had a number pinned on. Yeah. It's not my first choice. Um, (laughs) (laughs) it's not my... Welcome yeah, it's to the not baseline. My, Masters of, of absurdity. Yeah, yeah. It's not my first choice uh, for conditions, but 
I have all the gear uh, and I had some willing companions and yeah, it's not that bad. Yeah. I mean, it's actually as bad as conditions get, (laughs) but whatever, you know. Well, thanks to my number 22 drifter, which I had the good sense six weeks into my order to say, wait, 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 can I still order the fenders? Um, so I've got, you know, those awesome titanium fenders that do a world of good as fenders are wont to do. So when I finish work later today, I actually do think I'm going to go out and and get soaked. For me, for me, the big difference is just not ending up in a cold diaper, a cold wet diaper. So, you know, even the most modest offenders can make a big difference. But with these... You know, I'll end up with wet feet, but so what? Yeah. 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 Got to keep going. It's it's uh, end of January, beginning of February. Just got to keep going. Yeah. Uh, here in Northern California, I call that winting. 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 <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. It's, we're not really, we're past winter for us. We're past yeah. that. But it's not really spring. Mm. Yeah. If I were going to rename the season we're having right now, I would just call it gray. <laughs> I saw the sun the other day. This actually happened. I was walking f- out of the kitchen and I saw that it was there was sun in the sky. And I said, oh, oh it's the sun. I'm going to put on a jacket and walk outside. And I put on the jacket and I opened the front door and the sun was gone. <laughs> Snuffleupagus style? Yeah, yeah. And it hasn't been here since. No, we are it's, definitely Giant Xers. Uh <laughs> Snuffleupagus is a yeah. good one. Uh, uh, all right. Moving right along. What what is it you're gonna lead us into this week? Um I, I'm I'm aware that I'm and this may be just the season or my mood, but I've been on some rants lately. And I'm I have no. another one I have another one for you here today. Okay. Um, you know, the bicycle industry has a standards problem. I think we all know that. Well, it's become a source of comedy because you can't have a standard unless there's something that most folks are hewing to. Yes. Uh, it's, it's a problem that arises when companies create proprietary solutions to quote problems without enlisting partners across the industry to go along and treat the new thing like an actual standard. Mm hmm. So it's a, it's a spaghetti against the wall approach. And of course, the consequences land on us, the riders. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've talked ad nauseum probably about bottom bracket standards and how we went from everything being either English or Italian threaded 68 millimeters to an absolute mess of other nonsense as press fit BBs came into popular manufacture. <laughs> Crestfit was, of course, a solution to the problem of companies not being able to make bottom bracket shells in carbon frames to any reasonable tolerance. It actually wasn't a problem that riders had. It was a problem that builders had. So here, have this. (laughs) And then, of course, (laughs) what? I just I'm thinking about how, you know, their answer was, yeah, let's make a bigger problem of this now. Yes, Uh, because, of course, those bottom brackets creaked. Uh, notoriously, mm. which which led to the T forty seven standard, which was like, oh, it's this bigger, stiffer thing, but it's threaded. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
But meanwhile, the big companies are just willy nilly creating new nonsense standards. But that's by the by. We've talked about it. What seems to be happening now is a prolifer- proliferation of free hub standards. Uh huh. Yeah. Because now it's not just Shimano and Campy. Right. So we went from a shared Shimano SRAM standard and a single Campy standard to a kind of a profusion of new hub drivers, because, of course, we had to keep adding cogs to our cassettes <laughs> like like we got to 11 speed, maybe 10 speed and then just completely lost our minds. <laughs> uh, um, uh, yeah. <laughs> and yes, of course, there are good things about these evil evolutions. You know, do I think Microspline is probably better than Shimano HG? Yeah, I do. I think it's an improvement, uh, but probably a marginal one. And actually, the problem isn't the forward march or profusion of these standards for me as much as it is the backward compatibility or lack thereof. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, the problem, I think, is the need to buy new things to stay compatible with the other new things you bought. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I've, I've, I've gotten tired of uh, explaining to people, oh, yeah, but if you buy that thing, you have to buy this thing and that thing in order for them to work on your bicycle. Yeah. Yeah. The transition from nine speed to 10, no matter no matter whose groups you were using. Yeah, that was really painful because, you know, it seemed like a, a minuscule change or was it 10 to 11? I I'm, I forget now. Um yeah, nine to ten, because it, it was a minuscule change in what that Shimano HG Freehub body was. But, you know, what it effectively did was it killed all your nine speed wheels. Right. Right. Yeah. For example, how many wheels will be orphaned by a Freehub change now? How many wheels do we orphan when we add another cog to the cassette? Right. <sighs> yeah. So the industry has a trail of obsolete items that fans out behind it as it marches forward. Most industries do, right? Uh, What I'd like to see in the bike industry where we are, I guess we think of ourselves as environmentalists, is some real concern for how those obsolete parts might stay in the mix. Uh, Maybe some more attention to backward compatibility. And I'd love for there to be, this is pie in the sky, but I'd love for there to be an industry council with kind of unaffiliated riders or media or somebody mm-hmm. that could review new proposed standards and have some say in what designs make it to market. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the 386 EVO bottom bracket standard. <sighs> Sorry. No. <laughs> uh-uh. <laughs> they, they need like a titanium fly swatter. Wow. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. no. Yeah. Um, bicycle technology, it's to me, it's like an ecosystem. It can be healthier. It can be sick. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I know industry is seldom interested in having its plans scrutinized by outsiders, and not every piece of tech can be open source or backward compatible, but I really wish we did a better job with these things, especially now that bikes are so good. Like, literally, to me, I'm sure I'm wrong, but to me... I feel like we might be close to the end of bicycle improvement. Am I wrong? <laughs> like, how much better can the safety bicycle be? Two wheels. How much? 
really like we've we've gone all the way around the 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 track on on aerodynamics and <laughs> um uh how to how to frame my response i i mean i think what's going to happen is enormous resources that have gone into aerodynamics and weight and layup and all these different things are about to start being poured into e-bikes uh e-bikes are just they're just taking over uh you know they're they've been growing it better than 15 percent year over year for the whole of the industry yeah <sighs> you know it's that's where the but to to give a straight up response to your question Nobody's giving up on trying to improve bikes. Nobody's going to call it a day. No, I understand. I get, I, well, I sort of understand, but are, are, are we going to get to like 15 speed? Are we going to get to 20? Like at what point there is a, a an, a, uh, an, a, what, um, an ad, sir, ad, I can't speak. Why is it when I'm recording, my tongue goes south? Uh, there's an absurdist limit to all of this. Right. Um, it's worth pointing out that, you know, when when we went from seven speeds to eight, you know, adding an eighth cog, I forget what the, the percentage was, but it was like a 17% gain, 16% gain in just the number of options you had. Mm -hmm. But, you know, from, from uh, 10 to 11 was only 10%. You know, so each time we add a new cog, we're not actually gaining that much in terms of choice. Uh, you know, <clears throat> yeah, going from seven to eight meant a lot. Uh, eight to nine was huge. Eleven to twelve, I didn't get that much out of it. No, I mean, and you, okay, so you get gear choice and you get smoothness in shifting and you get a little shifting speed, but like, okay, here, let me, let me spin this back in a positive direction. Hey, bike industry, <laughs> great job. Great job. Bikes are great. Uh, the parts are great. Everyone's doing great. Um, if we could just get it all to be a little bit more modular and a little bit more backward compatible, man. I mean, that what you said right there really is something worth producing. You know, hub shells that will allow you to swap out uh, driver bodies and however else you want to call them uh, uh, to make those kind of infinitely flexible. Oh, hell mm. yeah. There's there's serious value in that. Uh, especially with so much, you know, happening now. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I, I, I think it's interesting the way like electronic shifting is trickling down, right? It started at mm -hmm. D, uh, Dura Ace, then Ultegra. Now you have one, 105 DI2. I imagine in the future, a lot of this stuff is going to go wireless. So then we don't have to keep doing, you know, internal routing of cables and wires and things like that. So, I mean, I, I, I do see where things are going to get better or easier or less greasy or all of those things. Uh, 
I think I would love to see the industry, you know, focusing more on less on these little marginal technical gains and more on the rider experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, the thing that amazes me is that there are still these amazing gains to be made. I, I'm thinking here of a product I was talking about with someone earlier today, the wave bar, you know, mm. it's, uh, it slopes downward from, uh, well, it rises from the stem clamp and then slopes downward as it moves out. But it also has, um, a, a sweep back on the bar tops so that your hands lay on the bar tops in a truly ergonomic position. Lovely design. How is it we've had drop bars for more than 100 years and only, whatever, three years ago, somebody said, you know, about that. Mm. Of course, it was an orthopedist. (laughs) (laughs) It was somebody with um, with education. It's it's called handlebar wrist. There's an... they call it that there's an actual name for when your wrists, it's not the, um, carpal tunnel. Mm-hmm. It's the other side. It's uh, cyclists who can't their hands outward. Oh, and they get this tendon on the outside of their wrist inflamed. I didn't even know that was a thing. It's a thing. Okay. Um, yeah. wow. you need to hang out with more orthopedists. <laughs> Uh, the last time I did that, I was in a lot of pain. So, I mean, if I can yeah. skip that. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Maybe that was my fault, not theirs. Yeah. <laughs> All righty. Well, why don't we take a break and we will come back in just a minute. This month, we're sponsored by our good friends at Seven Cycles, who've been in the vanguard of American custom frame building for more than a quarter century. I worked there for most of a decade, and I learned more than I knew there was still to learn about bikes. When you work with Seven on a bike, you get real input into the design. They offer more tube set options than any other builder. They offer more ways to customize your bike. The process is deep, but it's also fun, and the result is a bike you'll love riding for a lifetime. We've secured a few places in their busy build queue for Paceline listeners, which means now you can get a fully custom dream bike from Seven in just three weeks from the time you submit your measurements. This is the fastest route to the very best bike you're going to find. Just head to sevencycles.com TCI to find out more. Okay, we're back with the Paceline, the podcast on two wheels. What have you got for us this week? Well, as I've shared Recently, my son Philip is in the developmental or Devo program that is part of the National Interscholastic Cycling Association, also known as High School Mountain Bike League, uh, also known as NICA. So we're part of a composite team with kids from multiple nearby schools called the A-Team, as in Annadel, the park where we do our rides. So what, let me, I'm sorry to interrupt you already, but yeah, what I heard. What I just heard you say was that your son is in Devo and on the A-team. <laughs> I'm catching up. <laughs> I just. <laughs> he's, he's Mr. T in a yellow jumpsuit. That is a show that I would watch. 
Uh, okay. Um, I apologize, but you for, I, I was going to let Devo go, but then you said he was on the A team also. I was like, what? That is, that is yeah, that is 1981. Come back to, to Crow. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> all right. So uh, back to reality. I figured in order for Philip to be successful, I needed to be involved. And the only way to do that is to be a coach. You can't just come and hang out and do the rides as a parent uh, or, or anybody else for that matter. So last year, I took all the courses in order to become a level one coach with Nika. What I quickly learned is that level one coaches aren't all that useful. Um, we can accompany a group of kids um, and be useful from the standpoint of splitting the kids into smaller groups. Uh, but I can't lead a group. Hmm. Um, you know, you can't have like, uh, two level one coaches out with four kids. That's not a thing. Hmm. One of them has to be at least a level two coach. Interesting. Um, yeah. And you know, this wouldn't really be a thing were it not for the fact that the A team is more than 90 kids. Right. We need a bunch of coaches. Sure. Cause we can't have 90 kids climbing up Richardson or Canyon you know, even those are the big fire roads through the through the park. You get a conga line of 90 kids and it just no. So we try to split the team up into little grouplets of, you know, four or five, six kids. Mm -hmm. Well, you need a lot of coaches and okay. a bunch of us are level one coaches. Uh, so uh, I I figured I needed to start working to become a level two coach. This is going to take a little while. This is not an overnight thing where I take one online course or even five online courses. Uh, to that end, this past weekend, I attended a mountain biking skills 101 course. Uh, the course was taught by a veteran NICA coach, Morgan, Flitch, Morgan Fletcher. And if I may insert a little humble brag, when we met, he asked my name. I said, Patrick. And then he asked Brady. And then I said, uh, and then he said, uh, you know, I nodded. Yes. He said, I've been reading your work since bicycle guide. Oh, that's nice. Uh, that was really awesome. You know, I thanked him <laughs> profusely because that's what you do when you've had someone reading your work for 25 years. Right. Um, but it also told me something really important about him. His experience in cycling goes back Decades. This is a really right. knowledgeable guy. Right. And it's easy to be concerned in a circumstance like NICA, which, you know, was not a growth from uh, USA Cycling or anything else. You, you may wonder, well, where did these people come from? Well, here's somebody who is, you know, endemic to our community. So that was just stinking awesome. Mm. Um, there were a dozen of us uh, in our course uh, coming from Sonoma, Mendocino, and Marin counties. Um, and the course covered a number of basic skills that you, me, our listeners, anybody who rides mountain bikes have long since stopped thinking about. Um, Morgan took us through 10 essential skills, neutral and ready position. This is your position yep. on the bike. Yep. Bike body separation. Mm -hmm. pedal position, mm -hmm. eye movement, mm -hmm. braking, steering, speed, shifting, timing, 
and coordination and pressure control. Hmm. Um, each of the fundamentals uh, is taught in a tell it, show it, do it, and review it format, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, very intelligent. Okay, now I'm going to back up a second. Back in the 1990s, I helped develop a mountain biking skills curriculum based on the Professional Ski Instructors Association's uh, Nordic Ski Instruction Format. Okay. I, basi- I basically spent a whole summer developing a mountain bike skills curriculum. Um, I mention this only to try to convey that I have uh, some clue. It might be a small clue, but I have some clue about just how thorough and thoughtful the course that I just went through is. Um, so after we'd gone through a demonstration of each of the points, uh, our group was broken into pairs and each pair took one of the essentials and then taught it. One person talking yeah. it through and the other person doing the actual physical demonstration. <sighs> I've been mountain biking since, you know, George Bush, the first. Yeah. I think I know this stuff. It seemed like, oh, yeah, I'll get up there and I'll talk through and it'll go really smooth and everything. You get up in front of everybody and then it's like, oh, what the hell do I say next? (laughs) (laughs) You know, teaching is easy until you do the teaching. Right. Um, And, you know, that's when having a script in your head that's memorized you know, now we're going to snowplow. Uh, it's, you know, having a progression in your head and knowing I, I say this, then I follow it with this, and then I show them this. Having all that rehearsed is, is crucial to being a good teacher. Um, and, you know, I learned in a hurry, my God, I'm going to have to go home and practice this stuff because I didn't just take this for my sweet edification uh, or to give me, you know, editorial material. Uh, I went through this because I need to be able to help communicate these skills to kids who are still picking their noses. Yeah. Uh, and wait, are, is, are the rest of us not picking our noses anymore? Uh, uh, I still pick I, my nose. Anyway, I, let's move on. Let's yeah. move on. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I'm just, I'm amazed at, like, you know, the gift I was given. It was not a gift, okay? I paid for the course. But, <laughs> I mean, it was a gift in terms of my understanding of, my gosh, we really have a colossal responsibility here with these kids to try to help impart to them, you know, skills that, you know, we took years to screw up before learning how to get them right. Um, you know, at 14... Philip, he's just looking for a good excuse to quit. Mm. Even though when he's on a bike, he has fun and he's really good at it. Uh, yep. You know, the, the ability to lay on his bed and play on his tablet uh, is a, an easy win for him. Yep. Um, so uh, it, it just like everything that I've done with Nike, it helps to instill in me a sense of the, the, the great privilege, but also the incredible responsibility of working with these kids. Um, you know, I'm really happy to have Philip involved in this. You know, they do a great job of placing the emphasis on having fun 
and they just trust that the rest will come or not. Um, Philip, you know, he's in junior high. He's not under serious high school pressure yet, but for who he is and at this point in his life, he's under so much pressure with school. I, I think entirely too much pressure. Um, that having a circumstance like Nika, where he doesn't have to do anything but show up and have fun, is really welcome. Yeah. It, it, it's nice to have some place where he can have an easy win. Yeah, I think that's true. I, I went through this process for soccer coaching uh, when my kids were younger. Um, uh-huh. And I've played soccer my whole life. Um, and I even I even think I'm pretty good at it for you know i'm okay anyway (laughs) um i certainly know and knew a lot more than most of the parents Mm -hmm. uh just just uh from the sheer fact that i've been playing and watching the game my whole life uh and then i went and i did the coaching courses and what i learned was that you can know how to ride a bike, for example, just to move it back into cycling. You can mm-hmm. be really good at riding the bike and be really bad at teaching people how to do it. Uh-huh. Um, and, and so te- learning how to teach is as big a deal as learning how to break down the skills and communicate them. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And for, for what I noticed with soccer coaching was that, yeah, the kids wanted to have fun um, and I could be as in the way with that uh, as I could be helpful if I didn't, you know, sort of cleave to the, the rules that I've been taught in the, uh, in the coaching programs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, but it was it was really instructive learning not just how kids learn, but pretty much. I mean, they were saying this is how kids are. This is how kids are. And I I thought to myself every single time, this is how everybody is. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's a useful insight. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is how we all are. We all need some we all need, you know, fun. If you're trying to learn something, you need you need fun you need a goal you need a challenge you need all of those things sort of carefully concocted Mm -hmm. um and then the other thing that i learned was that you can there's a point where you shut your mouth yeah they need to then do the work Mm -hmm. they need to try they need to do all those things but yeah i didn't have a high school uh mountain biking team uh i really wish that i had oh my gosh yeah, well, I mean, if I just had a mountain bike in high school, sure. Holy cow! Yeah, yeah, yeah. true enough. True yeah. enough. So, um, but you know, I could have been just as horse led to water as Philip is. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess um, the way the bike worked for me is that it was. Non-organized bike time, uh, non-structured bike time was also uh, super important. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, there's a lot to be said for that. You know, just yeah. zero pressure. Um, and, you know, that's part of what makes the rides really great is all we're doing is saying, well, we're going to go over here now. Right. 
And so it it really leaves an awful lot uh, of room for them. Uh, but I suspect that I, you know, now that I've been given a lot of stuff to pass on to them, um, I could probably use some education and how to get the hell out of the way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I have been teaching a friend of mine to, to ride mountain mm-hmm. bikes, uh, and she is an eager student. She wants the information and that's helpful. But I, you know, I fall into that same trap of like, okay, John, you need to shut up now. <laughs> Just ride. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How many uh, times in my life have I learned the lesson, John? You just need to shut up now. A lot of times is the answer. You don't have to answer that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm. You know the great the great irony here is that we're loudmouths. We're writers. We're always talking mm. about this stuff. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we can't be quiet now because it's a podcast. We're supposed to keep talking. (laughs) All right. Should we move on to Paceline Picks then? I think that's a good idea. All right. So this week I'm picking Cushcore tire inserts. Yeah. Yeah. I decided to put inserts in my main mountain bike tires the last time I had the shop set up a new pair for me. Mm -hmm. And I've really liked them. Um, I got to admit, I was skeptical. Uh... I really only had them put in because I was like, I should know what this is about. Um, and I do like them. First of all, they they do improve shock absorption. So Cushcore claims they reduce impact force by 50%. Um, they ran tests with an accelerometer. Uh, what that means really when you're riding is a kind of, I think, modulation of force. Mm-hmm. Um, if you think about the way suspension is progressive, uh, I think Cushcore makes impact kind of progressive. So I feel all the same impacts, but they're slowed down a bit. Um, you know, hmm. the, and the amount that they're slowed down increases like suspension. It increases the further the insert compresses. Hmm. That makes sense. Uh-huh. Um, and the difference is perceptible and it's nice, uh, rides that are heavy and roots or sort of baby head size rocks feel smoother and that helps you feel more in control of the bike. Um, the other major benefit in my mind is rim protection. I tend to run low pressures lower than most of my friends. And so I'm constantly testing the limits of my rims ability to take hits. Um, having (laughs) a bit more time out, time out, time out. I want to ask you know, let's let's give uh, I'm being selfish mostly, but I'm trying to do I'm trying to claim this is for our listeners. Uh, give me a, a tire width. You're running 29. How You're going to ask a me a number on the tire pressure. Well, after I ask you the width of the tire. Uh, 2.34. OK, OK. Like Same that. range I'm running. OK, it's a Vittoria Martello. Uh huh. Um, And I'm probably running 15 pounds, 15 to 18. Okay. I don't really measure, uh, but when I have measured, I've thought, oh, wow, that's not a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Yeah. And my my friends will ask me like, how much pressure are you running? And I'll say, I don't know, squeeze my tire and they'll squeeze the tire and go, whoa. (laughs) (laughs) That's a technical term. Yeah. Um, Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm running like, 18 to 21, 19 to 22, somewhere in there, yeah. typically four, two threes. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, you're running 
noticeably lower pressure than I am. And how does Cushcore? I'm completely derailing your uh, review, and I don't mind. How does Cushcore uh, do with uh, tire squirm when you're running pressure that low? Um, well, it 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 helps. Um, I think this is they don't they talk about shock absorption, but I think actually um, running that low pressure, you notice a lot in corners. Uh huh right? That's where you start to squirm. And I think, uh, at those low pressures, sidewalls can start to buckle a little. The insert helps maintain a minimum rigidity in the tire. Uh And it's sort of like a platform for the shoulder knobs to grab the dirt from. Um, so yeah, would I run 15 pounds without the insert? I mean, I have carbon rims on those wheels so Mm -hmm. uh maybe not okay okay um i think this is you know i think the shock absorption is the real thing it it takes the it takes the um the high amplitude out of the shock a little bit if that makes sense, you know, you, you occasionally you'll you put your wheel into a rock at an angle you didn't mean to. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it just kind of takes the sting out of that a little bit. It gives you a little more bounce. Mm. Um, but but overall, I think it just it, it just adds a, a smoothness um, that air pressure alone, tire pressure alone doesn't give you. Interesting. I, yeah. I mean, I keep hearing great stuff and I just have not gone to it yet. Um, it may well, be that, time. Yeah, that's where I was. I was like, I don't need it. I don't need it. I don't need it. And then I was having these wheels switched over, t- uh, new tires put on. I was like, yeah, let's do it. And I'm and I'm kind of of the mind. Like, do I need it? I have it on one bike, not on the other, which is fine. Uh, would I do it on a new setup? I might. I think if you're running carbon rims, it makes a lot of sense Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) because you've invested money uh, and those rims will be useless, likely, um, if they're broken. Well, and, you know, it it seems to me that they're probably just as useful on aluminum rims because... A lot of the carbon rims are actually stronger than the aluminum rims at this point. That's true. That's (laughs) true. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I buy that. Um, hmm. I have the trail version of these for tires 2.1 to 2.6. Um, for 150 bucks, you get two inserts, you get valves and a valve core tool. Uh, you can get the set as a 27.5 set, a 29 set, and they actually put out a mullet set as well. Hmm. Uh, so mix size. Um, if you're having them set up uh, by your shop, add some dollars into your calculation for installation. Um, I recommend a pro install, especially if you've never done it before, but you'll want to factor a few extra dollars in for the shop. Okay. Neat. But you know, for 200 ish dollars all in, I think it's a pretty interesting upgrade. Especially if, if you're riding a lot of rugged technical stuff. Yeah. I wouldn't know anything about that. Right. (laughs) Uh, right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Huh. Um, well, yet another thing I need to spend money on. 
Yeah, sorry. <laughs> so this is a little late in the winter to be reviewing this. As I mentioned, it's winting now. Uh, but my pick this week is a is the Sportful Super Giara jacket. This is a surprisingly lightweight, water resistant, insulated jacket. Um, the front of the jacket is cut from Gore-Tex Infinium to keep rain and probably snow out while the back features a more breathable polyester. Um, it uses PolarTech Alpha for insulation, and uh, that's a term that may not mean anything for anybody, so I'm just going to say it's seriously effective. This is a crazy warm jacket. Mm -hmm. um, it's very nearly the warmest jacket that Sportful makes, as I understand it. Um, they intend it for, uh, when temperatures approach freezing, it doesn't seem like it's meant for below freezing. Uh, but you know, for, for robots, it might be. Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, Anything with insulation in it is going to go deep below freezing on my body. <laughs> um, with, with a light base layer, it's very comfy into the upper forties. So mm. it's, it's got some range to it. You know, one of the problems with some really warm things is like, you've got like an eight degree temperature range where either you're going to be sweating or not warm enough. I was going to say, I don't think I'm even putting this jacket on until it's freezing. <laughs> In your case, I could easily believe that. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's got three pockets in back, like any good jacket should, but it also has two mesh pockets that sit a little bit higher than breast pockets in the front. And uh, I don't know what they intended it for, but I think it's really handy for keeping food handy. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's useful. Uh, those pockets are useful. Uh, it comes in six sizes. Oh, I like that. Yeah. I, you know, part of that, I think, is due to the fact that the Gore-Tex in the front is not all that stretchy. So mm -hmm. since it's not going to be a super forgiving jacket, they need to make a bunch of sizes. So on the small end, it's a small, but they make up to 3XL. Okay. Um, unlike many brands, uh, save Pearl Izumi, Sportful offers several different cuts in their tops. There's tight, regular, and loose. Uh, the Super Giara is considered a regular in their fit, uh, which is to say, eh, you know, if you're not in race shape, it'll fit. Mm -hmm. um, if you're in winter shape, it could be a little snug around the middle. Mm -hmm. um, I want that size to be called buffet. That, that sort of larger, more accommodating fit should be called buffet. Sorry. I, I, I like it. I like it. Yeah. Uh, years and years ago, total aside, Giordana and Asos, I believe, put on their largest size. It wasn't like an XL or a 3X or whatever. They put TIR on it, which is what you see on the back of trucks that are considered wide load in Europe. Oh. I like it. Yeah. Yeah. Subtle. Uh, anyway, uh, so uh, I find Sportful, because they're a European brand, their stuff runs a size smaller than American brands. Mm -hmm. So with Sportful, Castelli, and Asos, I wear a medium in their jerseys and jackets. Instead of a... Small in Pearl Izumi. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. The sizing is definitely different. Uh, they make it in four colors. There's a black, uh, an olive green, which you couldn't put on me to, 
Ugh. That's Earth my tones. favorite. Yeah. Olive green is my favorite color. Oh, good for you. Uh, <laughs> there's a berry blue, which is a really nice blue, and then huckleberry, which is purplish. Uh, it's like deeper than a wine red. Mm-hmm. Uh, somebody would call it Cabernet. Uh, oh. The jacket retails for $280, which I respect is a lot of money. But, you know, again, it's winting now. Um, and so it's available uh, discounted in some locations. Uh, this would be a very good time to pick one up. And most places probably aren't done with all their cold weather yet. Right. Yeah, but we are not. It's still gray here. Yeah. Uh, I, I was reporting to Jennifer earlier today that uh, it, it's a gray that wishes it was black. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's actually brighter now that the rain is actually coming down. Mm. <laughs> Ray? The fray. <laughs> yeah. All righty. Well, that's a wrap on another episode of The Pace Line. We'd love to hear your thoughts on anything we talked about today in the comments on The Cycling Independent. And while you're there, consider subscribing. Uh, we have three, five, and $10 options, as well as the tip jar. Uh, your dollars do go directly into this pa- podcast and uh, the pockets of our other contributors like Stevel and Marine and Johnny Raz. Uh, we are a very tight, small operation and do need your support. And hey, uh, why not give us a little review when you uh, stop by iTunes or wherever you get us? Um, it does help others find us. Yeah. Until next week, I'm Patrick Brady with John Lewis. Thanks for listening to The Pace Line.